our text for this morning. Uh, if you've been tracking with, with us this summer, we are going through Acts 2. Open that up. I'll be in Acts 2, verse 42 through 47, if you want to read along with us. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and they fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You can keep doing it. Good morning, guys. How's everybody doing? I don't buy it. Not for one second. All right, there we go. That's a little bit better. All right, uh, like Carrie Haddison, if you have your Bible, have it open to Acts chapter 2. Uh, welcome to everyone who is joining us online. Uh, for those of you guys who are new or newest, online is not our ideal. If you're at home thinking that you can just sit on the couch for the next year, Showing you mistaken, but it is a concession to the moment, so we're glad that you are joining us wherever you're at. To everyone in the room, it is so good to be back with you guys. I've been out of town for a little bit, catching some rest and vacation with our kiddos, and I'm so delighted to be back with you guys. Um, I'm going to share a couple of quotations to start off our time together. From the great writer, author, theologian, C.S. Lewis. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, and more is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our goal, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. From Henry Drummond, 19th century Scottish evangelist, biologist, writer, and lecturer, the most obvious lesson in Christ's teaching is that there is no happiness in having or getting anything only in Murray, a 19th century South African writer, teacher, pastor, the world asks, what does a man own? Christ asks, how does he use it? And Randy Alcorn, the author of Money, Possessions, Eternity, says, abundance is not God's provision for me to live in luxury. It's his provision for me to help others live. God entrusts me with his money not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven. The more you give, the more comes back to you. Because God is the greatest giver in the universe, and he won't let you outgive him. Go ahead, try, see what happens. Fourth century bishop of North Africa, God 
is always trying to give good things to us, Augustine says. But our hands are too full to receive them. And finally, as it's been shown before, I don't know what they want from me. It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. Okay, today we're talking about money, possessions, and generosity. Welcome to church. We're talking money today. If you are new or newest to what we've been doing over the summertime, we are Anthem Arise. Two churches collaborating for the sake of the gospel on this series called The Devoted Church, asking what must the church be devoted to in and out of season, no matter the time, the place, the culture, the politics, first century Palestine, 21st century Ventura, what must the church be devoted to? And so far in our journey, by the way, if you've missed any of these, head to your church's website, check out the podcast, look at those old videos, we talked how the church must be devoted to Jesus, first and foremost. The church must be devoted to Scripture. The church must be devoted to each other. The church must be devoted to the table, the Lord's Supper. The church must be devoted to prayer. Lastly, Carlos led us to the church must be devoted to worship. And today, we will see from our text in Acts chapter 2, the church must be devoted to generosity. In our teaching text, verses 44 and 45 in Acts chapter 2. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Jesus, if we take a few moments to open up in Scripture this topic on money, possessions, and generosity, we first and foremost lay our agenda, our presuppositions, our comforts, our desires at the door, and we want to earnestly hear from you. What you have to say to us, how might you bring encouragement and correction to us in our thinking and how we live? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Embedded in this early account of the early church is something we try to avoid at all costs. We try to excuse away or just not want to talk about in polite company. It says money and generosity. Particularly, we see in this account of the early church and a few more in the preceding chapters, that they are devoted to being materially and monetarily generous with what they have. When it comes to generosity, many of us think of it as a transaction. Right? Many of us think it's kind of like an ATM situation with God. I have money, they need money, I could probably give money, but they will get money. And if I hear a good story or a good faith, then I may give a little more money. And today, rather than looking at generosity as a transaction, I want to invite us to see it as the natural fruit of a life filled with God's presence. Sixteen of Jesus' 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. In the gospel, one out of every ten verses, 288 in all, is directly dealing with the topic of money. The Bible offers something in the range of 500 verses on prayer, 500 verses on faith, and more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. One of those verses is in 
Jesus is serving on the mountain, Matthew chapter 6. For where your treasure is, it's rest that, there also will be your heart. So clearly, money, possessions, and how we handle it is of great importance to God. Why? Because what are the things displays what kingdom we're part of? How we handle it is of great importance to God because it reveals what we believe about God. It shocks you to know I can look at your credit card statement, your bank account, and I can determine if you believe God is generous and true with you. But what we do with our money doesn't simply indicate where our heart is. Like Jesus said in Matthew 6, it determines where our heart goes. It doesn't just indicate where our heart is, it determines where our heart goes. Where would you like your heart to be? A devotion to generosity is the outcome of a life devoted to Jesus and his kingdom. So today, what I want to do with our short time together is I just want to look at three very simple truths in the Bible about you and money in life of the gospel. Okay, so if you're not taking that a person, three truths really quickly. If not, learn them. That's a good all of those. Okay, number one, one truth from the Bible. You are a steward, not an owner. Psalm 24. Verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Which is a beautiful way of saying God made everything that's all His. The world and those who dwell therein, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So God has made everything, thus He owns everything. If we don't agree here, we're going to have a problem with the next 20 minutes. Come on. If we don't agree that God owns everything because he made anything, nothing else is going to matter this morning. Do we agree on the simple truth that God made everything, thus he owns everything? Cool. Great. We can before. I was worried there for a moment. But here's what's unique about humanity. Is God actually invites us into a special relationship with him, unlike any other creature. A relationship of stewarding. Right? We're not just a, a base recipient like the rest of creation of God's generosity and his provision. We actually get to help him manage and steward his resources. We're not passive recipients here. We are active players in the kingdom of God. So steward is a, someone who manages, oversees property, a possession, or finances on behalf of somebody else. They have authority even to make decisions about how to expend those resources. But good stewards always do it in a way that is honoring and beneficial to the owner. How would you like it if you had a financial planner who just spent all your retirement money on like a new boat? You'd be pretty upset, right? Then the point of hiring a financial planner is that they're going to manage and steward that money in a way that benefits who, them? They're like you. The way that benefits you, there might be a, a byproduct of benefit to them, right? They may get a commission, they may get a percentage, but only if it's benefiting you first. So often we kind of think of ourselves even in this way, like financial planners for God. So, I'm thinking about 
stops and bottoms all of that. But it's really more like this. That God, for a very short time on the timeline of history and humanity, has given us some of his creation to steward for a short time, but on its own. In a way that directs those who might seek us steward his resources and actually point back to him as the ultimate gracious giver of those resources. So how we steward what we have been given actually matters because it shows what we believe about the owner of those resources. And it demonstrates the kingdom we belong to. And it demonstrates whether or not you've been faithful or in the language of the prophet Malachi, robbing God. Here's a quick witness test for you. Uh, Listen to kids. You got a kid boy check this month, didn't you? Now, can I confess something to you? Many, many of us got like a paycheck for having kids back from the government. I confess something to you. My first thought was, sweet, we can just pay for the vacation we just took. This is awesome. It's so great that I have more money. Now, how ridiculous. Did I go out and earn that money in any way, shape, or form? No. No, no, no. That was a, that was a gift. Total, complete gift. Now, if I am that stingy with money I did not even earn from the salary, how can God trust me with any more? Money that I was not planning on, money that I have no right to, that I did not deserve, that came literally like a lottery in my bank account. And if I can't be generous, and if my first thought isn't to generosity, but how it serves me and comforts me, how on earth is God going to trust me with anything else? We've got small potatoes here, guys. I got three kids. Our monthly thing was $850, which is great. It's a blessing. It is a gift. I'm not saying it's anything other than that. This is small potatoes, guys. If I'm not faithful and generous with that little that was given to me that I wasn't even expecting a month ago, how on earth will God entrust you or I with anything else? First truth, we have to have lockdown in our heart. You are not the owner. I don't care how hard you work. You didn't own that thing. Your salary is not yours. It is a gift from God. Your inheritance is not yours. It is a gift from God. Your advanced child tax credit thing, whatever that is, is not yours. It was a gift. We are first and foremost stewards. We are not owners. The first thing we as Christians have to do is somehow take this mindset that I have things that don't belong to God. And thus I can fully dictate what to do with those things. That's going to be our first stumbling block for many of us in the room. Because immediately all of you guys like kind of tightens up a little bit. Whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh, let's not talk about this over here. Or like, oh, do I try pre-tax or post-tax? You're missing the point. If that's your question. If we start getting guarded and defensive about the stuff we have, we've already missed this first and most basic fundamental principle that you do not own a thing. You are graciously stewarding some of God's creation for a very short time. And what we do with that part of creation is giving us the steward matters a lot. God. Why? 
too, right here. Because God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. God doesn't need your money. God's not on this like ethereal financing campaign. He doesn't need it. But what he wants is your heart. When God looks at us, the thing he is looking at is our hearts. Throughout the scriptures, we see that God is more concerned with the motives and desires of our heart than any outward action that we tend to display. And so our hearts actually go towards him, not towards the world. The prophet Jose records, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. One of the things we see consistently throughout the scripture is God's heart for your heart. There are commands to give, to support the work of the church, commands to sacrifice, commands to take care of the sick and the needy and the poor, commands to provide for all of the things, yes, but he has constantly like, moved those aside to be sure our hearts are pure. The point is that God is generous and faithful, and his people are called to be like him. Generous and faithful. He is shaping us into his holy image, so we should reflect him in our actions. The biblical reality is the more we're with Jesus, the more we start to look like him. And when the Bible teaches about generosity as an outflow of life with God, there's this interesting element attached to it. The book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy, his budding church preacher and pastor, He's given him instructions to help lead the people he is leading. And he says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to, to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Thus, Storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Here's the fascinating thing about this passage. Paul does not say, all right, the rich in this present age, they're to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share because there are a lot of needs out there and God really wants to help those people and God can really use your help, making sure that, you know, hungry people are fed and Homeless people at home. God could really use it. Man, if you could step up, God could really use your help. No, no, no. In this passage, Paul says the recipients of the money and the good works are not actually the project. If you actually look at what he's saying, those things are almost sidelined a little bit. It's not that God doesn't care about that stuff. He absolutely does. But that's not the point of this paragraph. Did you catch? We are the project. You, the giver, you're the project. You're the one who needs some work. Paul said, don't, don't sweat about the poor people for a moment here. Because the outcome of your generosity is more about you than it is about them. Cool, cool, you got this church plan in some other part of the world. They're going to have some needs. Yeah, the church should take care of them for sure. But, but it's actually more about you than it is about them. We got some hungry kids. We got some kids who need rescuing from sex, slavery, human trafficking. Yes, important things. We'll get to that. But first, this whole generosity thing is about you. 
Randy Alcorn, one of the authors I shared earlier, says this in that same book. Giving jumpstarts our relationship with God. How? It opens our fists so we can receive what God has for us. The giver is the project. Because if our fists are still like this, we cannot receive what God has for us. We're still clenching everything we have, relying on those resources to provide for us, to make us happy, to bring us purpose, to bring us satisfaction. As long as our posture is this, we will not receive what God has for you. You wonder why you're not receiving what God has for you? Maybe it's because your life looks like this. We, as the giver of the project, we're the project. We're the ones who need to become more like Jesus. We break down the reason that Paul wants Timothy to teach this to the church. It's to grow the person with the resources to understand the true nature of life with Christ. Did you catch that in verse 19? So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In contrast to being deceived by the uncertainty of riches. That's not true life. True life is life with Christ. Verse 17, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Verse 19, so you may take hold of that which is truly life. If you want to be shaped, if you want to be changed by the power of God, if you want to grow in your understanding of what is truly life, do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. This posture, though, requires something. It requires intentionality. So often we wake up and we think generosity might just happen to us one day. Man, if I finally win that lotto, then I'll be generous. If I finally get that raise, then we'll have the margin to be generous. It requires intentionality right now. Three really key practicals here. Number one is to talk about generosity. Don't buy into the Western myth that it's impolite to talk about money. You know how many times Jesus talks about money? Jesus, no, 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 no. Don't talk about money at the dinner table. What are you doing here? What is this? No, no, this is church. We're not supposed to talk about that. Don't buy into the Western myth that it's impolite to talk about money. Talk with your kids if you have kids about budgeting, about money, about what you do with mom and dad's paycheck, how you live, how you support other people, how you pay bills. Talk with your friends about it. Don't silo off. Have a couple of trusted people who say, hey, I'm going to let you look at my bank statement. I'm going to look at your bank statement. We're going to hold each other accountable to make sure we're not being selfish, chasing after lives of comfort. We're going to be accountable to each other. Talk to your mentors, your pastors, people you trust, people that are wise counsel in your life. Say, hey, t talk to me about how I should be structuring our finances. Or, even boldly, can I see how you structure your finances? No one's ever asked that of me. Our life's an open book. I would love to share with you how we've messed up and how we're learning to grow in generosity. Talk about generosity. Number two. Keep, really keep practical here. Budget for generosity. Well, maybe for some of you, budget. That's a good starting point, right? Budget. Number two, budget for generosity, though. 
If you don't build it in, how, how's it going to happen? You're not going to suddenly come up with an extra 500 bucks. You're like, oh, perfect. This is like what I, I was hoping to be generous with somebody and just showed up on my door one day. No, no, no. God's already given you everything already. He's given everything you need for life and godliness already. It's done. Don't wait for that next thing. He's already given it to you. Budget for it right now. One of the things we share with our church is a really simple budgeting scenario. It's like three things. 10, 10, 80, we call it. 10%, 10%, 80%. Give 10%, save 10%, live on the rest. That's it. Super simple. Ultimate simple budgeting scenario. And third, talk about generosity. Budget for generosity. And number three, be ready for generosity. Okay, listen to me. You guys listening? Regular generosity paves the way for spontaneous generosity, not the other way around. Regular generosity paves the way for spontaneous generosity, not the other way around. Living lives, quiet, regular faithfulness in this area will prepare you really well for when that moment comes along where there's maybe a big need, when there's maybe an opportunity God puts before you. But you will not be ready for those moments. You will not be, to quote Paul, ready to be generous and share if that's not already a regular part of your life. So you got to be ready for it. Okay, so number one, number one. You are not the owner, you're the steward. Number two, God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Number three, his presence is the most important thing. Psalm 23, this beautiful psalm many of us know is a picture, this beautiful picture of God with us in every kind of circumstance. How he's our shepherd, how he's tenderly and attentively caring for us. And then there's this line in Psalm 23, verse 5. It goes, you anoint my head with oil. And the picture of oil in the scriptures and, and the various things that it represents, one of the key things that this picture of anointing oil represents is the presence of God on somebody. Right? It's a metaphor, it's a picture for the presence of God on somebody. And the oil is a picture that is given to us of God's presence like being poured out on us. You anoint my head with oil. Just think, picture that. Like olive oil coming down, getting in the little creases of your hair and in your ears and everything. Like you're anointed. God's presence is on you. He's with us. He's after us. His very presence is with us. He's abiding with us as we're abiding with him. But notice what follows that statement. In Psalm 23, verse 5, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. We want the fullness of God's presence on us. We want to seek after Jesus and be with him and let that presence be the thing that causes generosity to pour out of us. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. As the presence of God is poured out on us, our life, our cup, our possessions, our offerings, they overflow. They're poured out as a blessing. But notice, it doesn't precede the oil. It's a response to the oil. We're not chasing the overflow. We're chasing the anointing. We want God's presence. The overflow happens. 
We're not trying to get the good stuff in life from God. Rather, we're chasing God in his presence. Good stuff comes along. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about clothing. Don't worry about food. Birds of the air, the grass of the field. Right? God's got this covered. Your primary role is to seek first what? His kingdom. Not yours. His kingdom. And then God will take care of you. You'll have what you need. He's not going to let you go. He's a good father who likes to give good gifts to his kids. He's not going to give you a snake or a rock. He's going to take care of you. Jesus tells us two stories about the kingdom of God later on in Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. They're little short, like, one-sentence stories. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Primary. It's most important. It's worth everything. Everything in comparison to this little joy he found in that field. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? Your life in Christ, your salvation in him, your life in the family of God, this new kingdom you've been wrapped up. Is that more important to you than all that stuff? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding the one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The one pearl of great value. He sold everything. Got it. Jesus' teaching reveals that the truth of the kingdom of heaven in and of itself is the treasure. The kingdom is the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. Life with him is the treasure, not what you can get from him. Not what you can do for him. Life with him is the treasure. The best thing about following Jesus is Jesus. It's not a good marriage. It's not well-behaved kids. It's not money in the bank. It's not a good job. It's not good deeds, feeding the poor. It's Jesus. Seeking first Jesus then, when we put our trust and dependence on him, he provides for us like a good father. Knowing Jesus in and of itself is the ultimate treasure we can experience in this life. If you don't buy into that truth, nothing about generosity in the Bible makes sense to you. Because it's a competition of wills. It's a competition of masters. It's a trade-off. I once had someone in my life tell me, everything is a trade-off. You say yes to this, you say no to this. If we don't buy into this, that Jesus himself is our ultimate treasure, then every conversation about money is, I can't do this, or I can't do this. I can give here, but then I can't give here. I can go on this vacation, but that means we have to sacrifice here. Everything is a trade-off, unless Jesus is king. And we start to see everything we have through his lens. Anything and everything else falls short. But that's not even the point. The point is that when we find our treasure, cup overflows. When we find our treasure and sacrifice to obtain that treasure and elevate that treasure above all the other little treasures in our life, that takes care. Now, here's, here's the thing about generosity, and I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to you. I don't know if many of us have actually tried it. 
Now, I'm not saying you guys don't give. I'm not saying you guys don't help out a friend in need or support the work of the ministry of your local church or fund a missionary or whatever. I'm saying this kind of lifestyle that includes money but also encompasses our time and everything else about us, I don't know how many of us have actually tried it. And it reminds me of that famous Chesterton quote, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Why is this so often the case? I believe it's because we don't live with the end in mind. We take Master Yoda's advice and live in the present, which is kind of good advice sometimes. But the life of Christ is actually to live with the end in mind. It's to always be wrapped up in the future. It's to always be setting our eyes above this hill looking to the next one. It's actually about not being that wrapped up in what's happening in the present because we've got our eyes so fixed on what's coming. Because when our eyes are fixed on what's coming, it changes how we live here in the present. It changes everything about us. We often settle for a less than life where Jesus promises something different. Life and life to the full. But we're often complacent. And we're happy with just a little bit. Well, God has promised so much more. One writer said, being oblivious to eternity leaves us experts in the trivial and novices in the significant. But as we lived with the right end in mind, it actually changes how we live here and now. Jesus was and is bringing us into a new eternity and a new present. That's why Paul can write in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because Paul had his eyes set on the future. He's like, look, look, I can see my life through the lens of me already dying and seeing what's coming after that. So I can live my life in light of that. This may be a bit morbid here. But I want you guys to do a quick exercise. Imagine your death. I don't know. You can get weird with it, hit by a bus, some gruesome death, or just dying, sick, old age, laying in bed. Imagine what comes next after that. What comes next? I'm not going to ruin your picture of life with God, but just I'll say simply, it's life with God. And all that the Bible describes is our forever life with God partnering and working with him in his perfect kingdom, worshiping and enjoying his presence in the presence of the saints. Now, wherever you're at, lying on that deathbed, splayed out on the, the road, like roadkill, whatever it is, like turn your head over your shoulder, look at your life. Life with God is in front of you. What's behind you? Is it a life preparing to live with God? Or is it a life resisting life with God? Whatever it is, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, who knows? Some breakthrough scientific thing, we all live to 150. Is it a life spent resisting God and the kingdom in which we will ultimately be in? Or is it a life spent preparing for that life? 
N.T. Wright says, the only thing you take with you into eternity is yourself. How well-adjusted and well-prepared are you going to be for life forever with God? Especially with something as little and trivial as money. As has been the case each and every week, each and every kind of angle of this devoted thing, I just want to ask, where do you need to grow? Where do you need to take a step of obedience and trust? I'm not going to prescribe that ending for you. I trust the Holy Spirit's at work. And I trust actually two minutes in, you know, you knew where you needed to grow. I trust that. As soon as I said, today we're talking about money, you immediately knew, ooh, there's that thing. And then you just heard me Charlie Browning you for 25 minutes. You already knew where you need to grow. So I just want to challenge you as your pastor, as your kind of co-pastor with you, as, as someone who's opening up the text. Let's be faithful to the way of Jesus. Let's be earnest and honest about where we're at, not trying to be something or someone we're not. Say, where do we need to grow? Where am I taking that baby step of trust and obedience? Jesus, how can I submit to you as king more today than I did yesterday, more tomorrow than today? What might that look like? How might those small steps of obedience actually change your life? And I'll just kind of throw in as, as one last encouragement, don't do it alone. You got friends, you got community, you got fam in the room. Don't do this alone. If you need help, ask for help. If you need direction, ask for direction. If you need wisdom, ask for wisdom. First and foremost, from the Holy Spirit, yes, and amen, but also from your brothers and sisters in the room. Maybe you're feeling stuck. Maybe you're caught in like a mound of debt. Maybe you have obligations up the wazoo. Maybe you don't know what to do. Maybe you're barely making ends meet. Ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom. And look around to someone next to you and ask them for wisdom as well. Because I don't know about you, but I myself, being very convicted of what we just talked about for the last 20, 25 minutes, I want to live a life preparing for that forever life with God, not resisting it. It just seems such a waste. Man, what a waste. What's the potential of a little community, two little communities like ours, in Ventura, actually saying, yeah, we want to prepare for the life forever with God, even with the little stuff like money. Would you pray with me? Jesus, um, I just, I recognize like the footholds and those little hooks in our mouth that the enemy has when we talk about money and possessions. I recognize that all of us come in with our excuses. I just like... Man, our little whiny excuses. I don't have enough. I don't know enough. Well, I serve with my time, so I don't need to give my money. Well, I don't really know anyone who needs help. Just a little excuses. And God, you're so gracious to us. Thank you for not leading with a spirit of condemnation. Thank you for leading with love and grace and mercy toward us. As, as we, like little two-year-old toddlers, stumble around in life, you're not wagging your finger at us saying, when are you going to get your act together? But you're like laughing and you're, you're with us and you're on the floor with us, loving us. And it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. 
It's actually your love and your grace and mercy that shows us how to live life to the full. And so first and foremost, I ask, Father, that you would give us a right picture of you. You're not some, like, stingy old man in heaven. You're not some, like, salesy guy on a fundraising campaign. You're a good and gracious Father who loves to give good gifts to his children. Help us start with a right picture of you. And even Jesus, as we worship, would our words and our hearts like magnify and elevate you above ourselves, above our needs, above our comforts, would it elevate you to the prime position of king in our life? And Jesus, we do surrender what we have. Just like put it all out on the table. Say, Jesus, this is what you've given me. What would you like me to do? Would you help us live with the kind of trust that can fully believe and live out and seek your kingdom first and trust you to provide everything else for us? I pray this in the name and the power of Jesus. Amen.